Good, good afternoon. What a turnout on such a beautiful day. Uh, my name is Philip Munoz. I'm a professor of political science, and I serve as director of the Tocqueville program, and also our Potenziani program in constitutional studies. It's my pleasure to welcome you to our 2018 Tocqueville lecture. The Tocqueville program for inquiry into religion and public life and the Potenziani program in constitutional studies seek to teach Notre Dame students the fundamental principles of political liberty, as well as to educate the broader public on matters of faith, freedom, and constitutional government. Given its dedication to matters of religion and public life, the Tocqueville program has a particular concern to explore the moral conditions of freedom, including how a liberal society can also be a virtuous society. The program in Constitutional Studies fulfills its mission by asking and attempting to answer enduring questions about the principles of constitutionalism and how a constitutional regime flourishes uh, and also how they perish. And of course, the, the study of the American Constitution is central to what we do. Our 2018 Tocqueville lecture lies at the heart of both programs, and we're blessed today to have one of the nation's most important Catholic intellectuals with us. Uh, before proceeding, though, uh, a few uh, words uh, to acknowledge a few guests. The program in constitutional studies uh, is called the Potenziani Program in Constitutional Studies, and Mr. Potenziani and several members of his family uh, have traveled from California to be with us today. Thank you for being here. There are, there are several other families uh, who are very dear to me and supporters of the program. Uh, I know I'm not supposed to mention anyone, but um, if I don't mention you all, uh, please know how much I appreciate your generosity and how much you do for the program, which allows us to serve our students. Uh, there is one couple uh, I do want to mention, though, um, Bill and Jody Oros. Uh, Mr. And Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Oros gave the gift that brought me to Notre Dame. Uh, as I like to tell them, I'm the grant made flesh. <laughs> I wouldn't be here uh, without them, uh, and they've given me a great blessing in life, so thank you, Bill and Jody. As our uh, student fellows know, I take pr uh, credit for all the good things the program does, but I don't actually do any of the work. Uh, as they also know, uh, I have an amazing assistant, uh, Jennifer Smith. Um, she basically runs the program. Uh, the most amazing thing she's done recently is she's found a fantastic replacement for herself while she's out on maternity leave. Uh, so Sarah Joyce, I don't know where, Sarah's probably doing something. Sarah just joined the team a few weeks ago and pulled all this off. Uh, so thank you, Sarah, uh, for everything you've done. The best part of, about the program is working with our student fellows. So uh, Tocqueville fellows, why don't you stand up? I know some of you are already standing, but. <laughs> Just for the record, Professor Solomon is not a fellow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So our student fellows uh, meet with our guests uh, tomorrow. They'll have breakfast with Dr. George. Uh, they uh, help run the program. They help come up with ideas of who we should uh, invite. Uh, they just come and hang out in the office. Uh, it's the best part of the program, and if, I, if you want to know more about the program, I encourage you to chat with any of those students who were standing. Okay, two final announcements. Uh, for those students interested in great questions of law and politics, please come talk to me about the Constitutional Studies minor. We have a minor in Constitutional Studies at Notre Dame, or go to our webpage, constudies.nd.edu. Uh, and on that uh, webpage, you'll find announcements about our future events. And we have a phenomenal fall lineup. Uh, next week, Professor Michael Zucker, one of our most distinguished professors of political science, will be speaking on populism and constitutionalism. That's on Monday. That's our Constitution Day lecture. The week after that, we have Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, speaking here on campus. In uh, October, and this is the first public announcement of this event, we're going to be hosting a debate on the Trump presidency. Uh, I'm debating whether to call it Trump at halftime or Trump at the end of the first quarter. <laughs> and that debate's going to be between Jonah Goldberg of National Review and Charles Kessler of the Claremont Review of Books. And then uh, in November, we're going to have Bill, Col uh, Bill Galston, a, a former advisor to President Clinton, who will be speaking on liberalism after Trump. Please join us for any and all of those events. One of the things our Tocqueville Fellows do is introduce our speakers, so it's my pleasure to call to the podium uh, Nick Abujadid, a sophomore from Dillon Hall, and Nick will introduce our speaker. Nick. Thank you, Professor Munoz. I'm honored to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Robert George. Currently the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University, Professor George grew up in the mountains of Morgantown, West Virginia, and will be the first to tell you that while you can take the boy out of the mountains, you can't always take the mountains out of the boy. You'll find plenty of videos of him playing the banjo on YouTube and bluegrass music, all that stuff. Unfortunately, I'm not sure we'll be seeing much of that today. Although, who knows, maybe you have a surprise for us. What you can expect to witness this afternoon are the fruits of stellar intellectual formation. After completing his bachelor's at Swarthmore College, Professor George attained degrees from Harvard Law School and Harvard Divinity School, going on to complete his doctorate in philosophy at Oxford University under the tutelage of our very own John Finnis. Professor George joined the faculty of Princeton in 1985, and in 2000, he founded the James Madison Program of American Ideals and Institutions, which he's still the director of today. Among many other impressive roles, George was presidential nominee to the US Commission on Civil Rights, the Presidential Council on Bioethics, and the Commission of International Religious Freedom. Even the New York Times, in a rare yet welcome encounter with the truth, <laughs> has deemed Professor George the most influential conservative thinker in the country. His influence in countless areas of American life from the Supreme Court to the university campus is unparalleled. Now, he might not remember this, but I had the pleasure of meeting Professor George a few summers ago. I was a senior in high school in the midst of my college search when a friend of mine recommended that I visit Princeton, and that if I got the chance that I should meet with a certain Robbie George. So I hopped on a train in New Jersey, walked on campus, and walked up to his office door at the Witherspoon Institute, knocked, and luckily enough, I found him and his close friend, Luis Diaz, inside. They welcomed me in, were genuinely excited about my adventure that was upcoming at university, and over the course of almost an hour and a half or two, gave me some of the best advice I've ever received. 
You can imagine how amazed I was. Here was one of the most important thinkers in America, a man who splits his time between presidents and Supreme Court justices, giving me, a mere prospective student, his time and advice. I left that office that day with a clear example of what it means to lead a life of generous character and serious vocation, and also with five new books to read. <laughs> Though I think that advice was supposed to get me to end up at Princeton, and I apologize for failing on that front, <laughs> That conversation doubtless had a transformative impact on my life and is the reason for a lot of what I am today and what I hope to become in the future. So now, two years removed from the day when Professor George generously welcomed me at Princeton, it is with deepest gratitude that I welcome him to Notre Dame. Professor George's lecture is titled Citizenship, Virtue, and the Constitution, Protecting Liberty and Preventing Tyranny. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Robert George. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, and a special thank you to you, uh, Nick. But I want to say, after all I did for you, you came to Notre Dame rather than going to Princeton. You call that gratitude? <laughs> but you're lucky to have young men just uh, like that, young men and women uh, who really are uh, a bright future for this university and for our country. It's always a pleasure, a great pleasure, to return to Our Ladies University, and I'm deeply grateful to my friend Phil Munoz uh, and to the Tocqueville program for the honor of being invited uh, to give this year's Tocqueville uh, lecture. I want to add my own word of thanks to Phillips, uh, to Mr. Uh, Betsiani, Betsiani and his uh, family, and to the Oros family. Uh, thank you for making the program possible and uh, this lecture. It's such a treat to be back uh, and meet so many dear old friends. I've already been able to greet my old pals, David Solomon, Jim McAdams, Jerry Bradley, Dan Philpott, uh, and so many uh, uh, others. And also to make new friends. Uh, I've been admiring and benefiting from the work of Robert Audi for many, many years, but we'd never actually uh, met. And just a few minutes ago, we had the opportunity uh, to have coffee together and to find out that we both have Lebanese-Syrian heritage, and that was, uh, that was fun. Uh, finally, I want to say thank you to uh, John and Nina Huliat and the Bruderhof uh, community uh, who arranged for my transportation, who brought me uh, uh, out here to Notre Dame uh, today. It's really a joy to have uh, those representatives of the Bruderhof community with us at Notre Dame. They're going to have an opportunity uh, to meet some of my best friends and some of the people I think are doing the best work in the academic world while they're here, and so that's a special treat. Now, those of us who are citizens of liberal democracies, liberal democratic polities, tend not to refer to those who govern us as our rulers, now do we? It's our boast that we rule ourselves. And there's truth in this, in as much as we participate in choosing those who do rule. So we prefer to speak of governors and presidents and other public officials not as our rulers, but rather as servants, public servants, or at least people being in public service. And the politicians will play along with this, of course. You, we've all seen uh, our rulers on television saying, well, in my 36 years of public service, I have never seen such outrageous behavior as what the opposing party's up to today. Now, of course, these so-called servants are nothing remotely like the servants in, say, Downton Abbey. The extraordinary prestige and usually the trappings attaching to public office in just about all times and all 
places would by themselves be sufficient to distinguish, say, the mayor of South Bend or the governor of Indiana or the president of the United States, whether it's Bill Clinton or George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump, from Carson the butler. But that prestige signals an underlying fact that discomfits our democratic and egalitarian sensibilities, namely, the fact that even in liberal democratic polities, high public officials are rulers. They make the rules. They enforce them. They change them. They resolve disputes about their meaning and applicability. To a very large extent, at the end of the day, what they say goes. Now, of course, our rulers rule not by dint of sheer power, the way the mafia might do in a territory uh, over which it happens to have gained control, but rather our democratic rulers rule lawfully, and that's important. Constitutional rules specify public offices and settle procedures for filling them. Whether the Constitution exists in the form of a specific document, such as the Constitution of the United States or the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts or Virginia, or in some other form, as in the United Kingdom, for example, or New Zealand, where you have an unwritten Constitution. The Constitution, whether written or unwritten, constitutes, in a sense, the set of rules governing the rulers, rules that both empower office holders to make and execute decisions of various sorts and limit the powers of those office holders. So though our rulers are indeed rulers, they are not absolute rulers. And again, that's obviously terribly important. Constitutional rules set the scope and thus the limits of their jurisdiction and authority. They are rulers who are subject to rules rules that they do not themselves make, though they make lots of other rules, and rules that they cannot themselves easily or purely on their own initiative revise or repeal. Amending the Constitution, just about any Constitution, is a process that requires more than just a dictate from a potentate. They rule, our rulers, in limited ways, and ordinarily for limited terms, which may or may not be indefinitely renewable at the pleasure of the voters. They rule by virtue of democratic processes by which they came to hold office. And they can be removed or significantly disempowered at the next election if the people are not happy with them. Still, for all that, they rule. Now, my point is not to hoot at the idea of government and those holding governmental office and controlling the levers of power as servants. I'm not laughing at that idea. On the contrary, I want, in the end, to defend the idea that rulers actually can be servants. I want to establish, however, that if these people we call public servants are indeed servants, our servants, they are servants in a very special sense, a sense that is compatible with them at the same time being rulers.
they are people who serve us, these servants, by ruling. They serve us well by ruling well. If they rule badly, they serve us poorly. They disserve us. Now, there are, of course, lots of ways that rulers can disserve those whom they have the moral obligation to serve well by ruling well. Most obviously, there is incompetence. Then, of course, there is the all-too-familiar phenomenon of corruption. And at the extreme, there is tyranny. So what does it mean for the ruler truly to be a servant? What does it mean for someone holding public office and exercising public power to rule well? It means making and executing decisions for the sake, truly for the sake, truly for the sake of the common good. Not the ruler's own good, not the good of the ruler's tribe or clan or party or group or in-group, but for the common good, the good of the political community. Such decisions will necessarily be compatible with the requirements of justice, and at the same time, they will embody justice. If we understand the concept of the common good properly, and I'll say more about that in a moment, then we will see that no decision that violates a requirement of justice is or can conceivably be truly for the common good. And no decision that genuinely upholds and serves the common good will fail to advance the cause of justice. It is also important to note that decisions can fail to serve the common good and can indeed damage the common good even when they are not unjust. Even honorably motivated and well-intentioned people, including rulers, can make decisions that harm the common good because they are inexpedient, imprudent, or unwise. Holders of public office, like any of the rest of us in this veil of tears, can make poor, even disastrous decisions, even when acting on the purest and best of motives, even when wanting truly to serve the good of all, truly to serve the common good. Poor decisions by well-informed public officials, I'm sorry, by well-intentioned, poor decisions by well-intentioned public officials can, for example, trigger or prolong a Great Depression. There's a, there's a big debate among historians as to whether the decisions made by the government in the wake of the crash of 1929 actually created the Great Depression, what became the Great Depression. Poor decisions, even by well-intentioned leaders, can lead a nation into an unnecessary and even disastrous war, or prevent a nation from going to war to protect its people and their vital interests when it should have done. Poor decisions can go either way. Poor decisions, even by well-intentioned leaders, can undermine or weaken important cultural institutions, say the institutions of marriage and family life, and everything in a society that depends on the health and vibrancy of those institutions. It's worth adding here, of course, that reasonable people of goodwill can, and quite obviously do, often disagree about what the common good in fact requires and forbids, what is in truth just and unjust. 
Honorable people exercising public power can commit injustices, even grave injustices, while seeking in good faith to do justice and believing in good faith that they are doing it. Someone can make an unjust decision who could pass a lie detector test saying that he or she made that decision for the sake of advancing the cause of justice. Still, uh, so just as not all violations of the common good are injustices, not all injustices are the result of ill will or malice or like vices. Still, all injustices, even if committed by officials who are sincerely trying to do the right thing, harm the common good. For justice is itself a common good, that is, it is a good that all of us have in common, the good of living in a just society. So justice is itself a common good, and also a central aspect of the common good of the political community. It is to the benefit of each and every citizen to live in a just social order, and harm to that order is therefore a loss for everyone, and not merely for the immediate and obvious victims of any particular injustice. Take, for example, our own sad and sordid history of racial injustice. The wrong done there, the harm done there, was not just to African-American victims of Jim Crow policies like segregation. The harm was to everyone, because everyone has an interest. It's for the good of everyone to live in a just society. Indeed, injustices are a loss even for the ostensible beneficiaries of injustices, and indeed even for the perpetrators of those injustices, though naturally true evildoers don't see it that way. They'll miss the fact that they too are harmed by the injustices that they commit. Corruption of character narrows their vision of the good, which is why they can't see the harm to themselves, blinding them to the profound respects in which wrongdoing harms what is in truth their interest, as much as it is anyone else's, in living in a just society. Now, the common good requires that there be rulers and that they actually rule. There's a non-option, and that non-option is anarchy, not having anyone in charge. Now, I suppose if you have a very simple and small society, you can hold New England town meetings and, and you don't need public office holders. You know, in a, in a very, very simple situation, you could have that. Uh, but not in complex societies, certainly not in societies like ours. There need to be rulers. It's not a bad thing that there are rulers. It's not a bad thing that there are people who have power. That power can be abused, yes. Sometimes it will be abused, yes. But the common good itself requires that there be people in charge. And to grasp this is to begin to see the sense in which good rulers truly are also servants. Members of societies, especially complex modern societies, face a range, sometimes a vast range, of challenges and opportunities requiring both means to ends and persons to persons coordination including in the cases of complex societies, 
coordination problems presented by the large number uh, and the complexity of other coordination problems. Since such problems cannot, as a practical matter, be addressed and resolved by unanimity or by holding a New England town meeting, authority, political authority, is required. Institutions will have to be created, and they'll have to be maintained, and persons will need to be installed in the offices of those institutions to make the choices and the decisions that must be made and to do the things that need to be done for the sake of protecting public health, safety, and morals, upholding the rights and dignity of individuals, families, and non-governmental entities of various descriptions, and advancing the overall common good. By coordination problems, just to give you a simple example, I mean things like, and this is a very simple example, traffic regulations. We need them. If we don't have traffic reg regulations, we'll have chaos on the roads, even with the most well-intentioned saintly people in the world. If we don't have those coordination norms, stop sign here, red light there, you drive on the left rather than the right, or the right rather than the left, it doesn't matter which, but somebody's got to stipulate one or the other to coordinate our behavior so that we can transport ourselves safely, we can transport goods without terrible traffic jams and other problems on the highways. And of course, that's just one very simple example of the many that we could cite of coordination problems that require authority for their resolution. And this would indeed be true even in a society of perfect saints where no one ever sought more than his fair share from the common stock, no one ever violated the rights of others or deliberately acted in any manner that was contrary to the common good. Even in such a society, effective coordination for the sake of common goals, and thus for the good of all, would be required, and seeking unanimity would be, well, not a practical option. So authority would indeed be required, and that means persons exercising authority. In other words, rulers who rule. But the moral justification for the ruler's ruling is precisely service to the good of all, service to the common good. And the common good is not some abstraction, some platonic form hovering somewhere out there beyond the concrete well-being, the flourishing of flesh and blood persons constituting the community. The common good, in fact, just is the well-being of those persons and of the families and other associations, Burke's little platoons of civil society of which they are members. The right of legitimate rulers to rule, and legitimate rulers do have a right to rule. The right of legitimate rulers to rule is rooted in the duty of rulers to rule in the interest of all. In other words, the basis of the right to rule is the duty to serve, to serve the common good. And the realities that constitute the content of that service are precisely the various elements of the common good. By doing what is for the common good, and by avoiding doing anything that harms the common good, rulers fulfill their obligations to the people over whom they exercise authority, thus serving the interests of those people, serving their welfare, their flourishing. In a word, serving them, or better, serving us. Now, I don't know how to improve on the definition of the common good, 
proposed by Professor Finnis in his magisterial book, Natural Law and Natural Rights. The common good, Finnis says, is to be understood as, and let me quote him here and, and um, note the emphasis that I'll throw in with my voice. So Finnis says the common good is to be understood as, quote, a set of conditions which enables the members of a community to attain for themselves reasonable objectives or to realize reasonably for themselves the values for the sake of which they have reason to collaborate with each other positively and or negatively in a community, unquote. By positively or negatively, I think what John means here is uh, negatively by sometimes coordinating things so we're staying out of each other's way and out of each other's hair and out of each other's business. Positively by positive forms of cooperation to get the town library built, the swimming pool in place, common defense, what have you. Now every community, every community, political or otherwise, from the basic community of a family to a church or other community of religious faith, to a mutual aid society or other civic association, to a business firm, any association will have a common good. That is, we'll have the reasons for the sake of which we collaborate, coordinate our behavior. The common good of some communities is fundamentally an intrinsic good rather than an instrumental good. That's true, for example, of the community of the family. Although families serve many valuable and some indispensable instrumental purposes, the point of the family is certainly not exhausted by those purposes, nor do they define what the family is. The most fundamental point of being a member of the family is simply being a member of the family, enjoying the intrinsic benefit of being part of that distinctive network of mutual obligation, care, love, and support which is why at least <laughs> most of us still think even if some other family could do a better job of raising that family's kids, we leave, unless there's some abuse or neglect, we leave the kids with that family rather than transferring them over to this family that does a better job at education or getting the kids uh, to school on time or what have you. Now, the same is true, at least in Christian and uh, Jewish thought. It may be true of the other great traditions of faith. I just don't know them as well. But certainly in Christian and Jewish thought, the same is true of the common good of the community of faith. It's not fundamentally an instrumental good. It's most fundamentally an intrinsic good. Though communities of faith characteristically serve many valuable instrumental purposes, you know, they... Uh, they uh, sometimes do social good, like, you know, have soup kitchens and uh, outreaches uh, on behalf of the poor, the St. Vincent de Paul Society and so forth. They give you some place to go on Sunday morning. They give you a nice liturgical experience. There are lots of instrumental things that, uh, that are done. Those are not what's fundamental about the community of faith. It's not the most fundamental purpose of Israel or the church. Rather, the most fundamental purpose of Israel or the church is to be the people of God. That's what it means to be a believing Jew, a devout Christian. 
Things are obviously different, though, when it comes to, say, business firms. Business firms, and this is not in any way to denigrate business firms. We're not, we're, we're not, we're not ranking things here. Uh, although if you want to do that, we can do that later. <laughs> but business firms differ in the nature of their common good from, let's say, the family or the church because fundamentally the purposes of the business firm are instrumental. The common good of the business firm is fundamentally an instrumental good. Now, although there are ordinarily many opportunities for the principals and employees of companies to realize intrinsic or basic human goods, including goods that are fundamentally social, such as the good of friendship, in their collaboration in pursuit of the firm's objectives, those objectives are the ends to which the firm and the cooperation of those working in it and for it are means. When we organize Truman and Smith, haberdashers and hatters, when we do that, we don't do it in order to be haberdashers and hatters. That's not the fundamental reason. Like, you know, being in the family is the reason for being in the family. Being part of the people of God is the reason for being the church or being Israel. You're trying to make good products, sell them at a profit, do a business. Now, it's great if you treat your customers fairly, that's intrinsically good, that you cooperate with each other in a friendly manner, you know, you go to each other's kids' weddings and recitals, you, uh, you, uh, you take an interest in each other, all that, of course, there are plenty of opportunities on all of human affairs for the realization of intrinsic goods. But you've got an instrumental purpose in forming the business firm. And once that instrumental purpose is no longer there, no longer relevant, you dissolve the firm. Now, I hope you still stay friends and you stay in touch and you go to each other's kids' marriages and their recitals and so forth, but the reason for the firm's existence is no longer there. Now, of course, you can see where this is headed, straight to the question of, okay, so what about the good of the political community? Is it fundamentally instrumental, like a business firm, or intrinsic, like the family, or the church, or Israel? Now, there is in what uh, the late Sir Isaiah Berlin referred to as the central tradition of Western thought about morality, including political morality, a powerful current of belief that the common good of political society is in fact an intrinsic good. This seems clearly to have been the view of Aristotle, and many self-identified Thomists are firmly convinced that it was the view of Aristotle's greatest interpreter and expo expositor, St. Thomas Aquinas. Professor Finnis, however, argues that the common good of political society, though, to quote Aristotle, great and godlike in its range and importance, is nevertheless fundamentally an instrumental, not an intrinsic good. And he further argues that the instrumental nature of the common good of political society entails limitations of the legitimate scope of governmental authority, limitations that, though not in every case easily articulable in the language of rights, are nevertheless requirements of justice. The state should stick to its basic instrumental purposes. Now, although I have a difference at the margins with Professor Finnis, who uh, along with uh, Professor Raz, Joseph Raz was my graduate supervisor, on the question of just what those limits are, and in particular, uh, how those limits, uh, whether those limits exclude in principle certain forms of paternalism, such as moral paternalism. I agree that the common good of political society is fundamentally an instrumental good, and that this entails some moral limits on justified governmental power. 
the way we've come to think of these limits is in terms of what is usually called the doctrine of subsidiarity. And this is a sound doctrine, though the label has now been appropriated by some people who, for whatever reason, want to use the word without actually signing on to the doctrine. I see this all the time in debates in Europe uh, in which the term subsidiarity is, is tossed around uh, without anybody seeming to have much of an idea of what it actually uh, uh, means. They know it's a good thing. Uh, so you want it on its side, or you want to say that you're on its, uh, it, its side, but sometimes it seems to be used to justify the opposite of what subsidiarity uh, is really all about. Without implying bad faith on anyone's part, it does seem to me that this amounts to an abuse, and it destabilizes the word's meaning in a way that may eventually render it useless. You know how language works. Uh, after a while, we might have to come up with uh, another word if this keeps up. Still, we have no better word for it at the moment, so let's just be clear in our own minds about what the doctrine actually does hold. Eighty-seven years ago, Pope Pius XI, in the encyclical letter Quadragesimo Anno, explained the basic idea, and let me now quote uh, Pius XI. Just as it is wrong to withdraw from the individual and commit to a group what private initiative and effort can accomplish, so too it is wrong for a larger and higher association to arrogate to itself functions which can be performed efficiently by smaller and lower associations. This is a fixed, unchanged, and most weighty principle of moral philosophy. Of its very nature, the true aim of all social activity should be to help members of a social body and never to absorb or destroy them." Unquote. That is what subsidiarity is all about. And it is indeed a principle of justice, something that we owe. Now, this principle of justice and the common good reflects a particular understanding of the nature and content of human flourishing. And here's what that understanding is. Flourishing consists in doing things, in activity, in the realization of valuable ends, human goods, by acting. It does not consist just in getting things or having desirable or pleasant experiences which you might have on Bob Nozick's experience machine or by taking enough, uh, what's the, whatever the latest Darvon it used to be, whatever the Valium, or having things done for you that you could just as well do for yourself, getting the benefit not only of the things, but of the doing, the activity. The good, in other words, as Aristotle taught, consists in activity. Human goods are realized by acting. One participates in them thus enriching one's life and even ennobling oneself as one exercises and fulfills one's natural human capacities, for example, one's capacities for friendship, for intellectual knowledge, for critical aesthetic appreciation, for the development of skills, whether in chess or ballet or, what's that game you play here, football, or anything like that. And so the common good is, as Finnis remarked, best conceived, you remember the definition I quoted, as a set of conditions, as a set of conditions. But of course we must ask, conditions for what? Well, let's recall Professor Finnis's definition. Conditions for enabling members of a community to attain 
for themselves reasonable objectives or to realize reasonably for themselves the values for the sake of which they have reason to collaborate together in a community. The common good is in this sense, in other words, facilitative. Its elements are what enable people to do things individually and in cooperation with others in civil society, the doing of which is to a significant degree constitutive, constituting of their all-round or integral flourishing. Under favoring conditions, people can more fully and more successfully carry out reasonable projects, pursue reasonable objectives, and thus participate in human values, including some values that are inherently social, inasmuch as they fulfill persons in respect of capacities for non-instrumental forms of interpersonal communion, that are indeed constitutive of their well-being and fulfillment. When we understand the human good correctly, we understand human goods as constitutive of human flourishing. We flourish by the realization of those goods through our acting. The goods are not mere means to, for example, the creation of pleasant psychological states. Why do we want to be friends, want to be a friend, want to have a friend, to enter into that unique, wonderful form of relationship that is friendship, where we're not just using each other, we're really willing the good of the other for the sake of the other, each friend willing the good of the friend for the sake of the friend? Why do we want that? Not because it might be the means for inducing a pleasant psychological state. We want that for its own sake. And that's our recognition that that activity, that reality, is what's constitutive or an aspect of our all-round or integral fulfillment. Properly understood, then, the common good requires, as a matter of justice, limited government. Subsidiarity requires that for sure government that respects the needs and rights of people to pursue objectives and realize goods to the extent possible for themselves. The fundamental role of legitimate government, and thus the responsibility of legitimate rulers, rulers who serve, actually serve, is not to be doing things for people that they could do for themselves. It's rather to be helping to establish and maintain conditions that favor people's doing worthwhile things for themselves and with and for each other. Like doing the St. Vincent de Paul Society or Little League or Campfire Girls or any of a zillion other things. Governments should do things for people as opposed to letting them do things for themselves, only where individuals and non-governmental institutions of civil society cannot do them or cannot reasonably be expected to do them or do them well for themselves. Finnish uses the word in that definition I gave you, enable, and I think that's exactly the right word. Government's legitimate concern is with the establishment and maintenance of conditions under which members of the community are enabled to pursue the projects and goals by and through which they participate in the goods constitutive of their flourishing. Now this fundamentally facilitative concept, uh, conception of the common good does not require any kind of doctrinaire libertarianism, either in the domain of political economy 
or social morality. Sometimes people will jump straight from the doctrine of subsidiarity to the night watchman state. And that's just a false and unjustified and unwarranted move. But it clearly does exclude some things. It excludes corporatist and socialist policies that, to recall those words from Pius XI, and I'll quote him again, withdraw from the individual and commit to the group, which may be the group going all the way up to the national community, the national government, what private individual, and, uh, private individual effort can accomplish or which remove from the family or religious or civic association and commit to the government what can be accomplished by non-governmental collaborative effort. Surely a conception of the common good that is serious about the principle of subsidiarity will respect private property and take care to maintain a reasonably free system of economic exchange, that is to say, a basic market economy. Social, that is comprehensive or widespread state ownership of the means of production, which is consistently and harshly condemned under the label socialism by the tradition of papal social teaching going back to Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum, is plainly incompatible with subsidiarity's concerns and objectives, as is anything resembling a command economy. And this would be true even if the record of socialist states were benign when it comes to respect for civil liberties and political freedom, which on the whole it certainly is not. And it would be true even if, again, contrary to the historical record, private property and the market system were not necessary as checks against the excessive concentration and abuse of power in the hands of public officials. But I've, I've noted the historical record demonstrates that private property in the market system, while not sufficient as guarantees against the concentration and abuse of power, are for all intents and purposes necessary conditions for civil liberty and limited government. And there's a profound lesson in this for those of us who are interested in ensuring that rulers remain servants, ruling in the interest of citizens, and do not reduce citizens to a condition of dependency and servitude. For it's critical to the effective limitation of governmental power that there be substantial non-governmental centers of power in society. Private property and the market economy not only provide the conditions of social mobility, which is important to the common good in any modern or dynamic society, but also ensure that there are significant resources and thus opportunities for people in the private associations they form that are not in the control of governmental officials or the apparatus of the state. This diffusion of power benefits society as a whole and not only those who immediately benefit economically from the possession of private property or the ability to profit in the market. And I'm not simply here talking about general prosperity, though that is yet another benefit of private property in the market system. I'm talking about the benefit to all in terms of liberty, opportunity, and security of the diffusion of power. Now, incidentally, there's another side to this as well. It's a concern for the diffusion of power that can, under certain conditions, justify breaking up monopolies, for example, as with antitrust laws, and taking other steps to facilitate competitive markets and combat the bad effects of excessive concentrations of private in the sense of non-governmental economic power. So once again, these basic principles are not a straight shot, in fact, they're not a shot at all to some sort of laissez-faire capitalism idea. Now, the points I'm making here go well beyond economics. 
If we understand the common good, if we have a grasp of what constitutes or is conducive to the flourishing of human beings and what is not, we will recognize that limited government is also important because it permits the functioning and flourishing of non-governmental institutions of civil society. Those little platoons again, families, churches, those institutions that Tocqueville noticed all the way back in 1830 were so central to the success of American democracy. Institutions that perform better than any government conceivably could, the most basic, the most essential health, education, and welfare functions, and which play the primary role in transmitting to each new generation the virtues without which free society simply cannot survive. That is, stuff like basic honesty, integrity, self-restraint, concern for others and respect for their rights and dignity, civic-mindedness, and the like. Governmental institutions can do a lot of good things. Markets and economic firms can do lots of great things. Legal systems can do lots of great things. But there's one thing none of them can do. Bring up kids to be decent, basically, nobody's perfect, but basically honorable, trustworthy, hardworking, individuals, people with integrity, people who can be citizens in a free society. That requires non-governmental institutions, beginning with the family, assisted by religious communities, civic associations of every type. These non-governmental authority structures represent another crucial way in which power is properly diffused and not concentrated in the hands of the state and its officials. They can play their role only when government is limited by the principle of subsidiarity. For unlimited government always usurps the authority of those institutions of civil society, beginning with the family, and destroys their autonomy, usually recruiting or commandeering them into being state functionary organs. And where these institutions play their proper role, they themselves help to create conditions in which the ideal of limited government is much more likely to be realized and preserved and its benefits enjoyed by the whole of the people. Now, I'm going to return again just in a few minutes to the institutions of civil society. But now let me shift to a discussion of the question of constitutional structure, con structural constraints on the power of government, these formal constraints. So far, I've been talking about informal ones. Historically, political theorists have focused on the need for constitutional institutional structural constraints as the most obvious and important way to ensure that governmental power remains limited and that rulers serve the people and don't become tyrants. And I myself think that constraints of this nature are important in this cause, though I will eventually get round to saying that they are likely to be effective only when they are part of a larger picture in which they are supported by and in turn support other features of social life that help to keep government within its proper bounds for the sake of the common good. So as important as these constitutional structural constraints are, I want to warn today against placing too great an emphasis on them. And my reason for that is there's a danger, if we do that, that we will ignore other essential features. Now, this puts me in a somewhat unusual position, or a position unlike the one I'm usually in. Usually I'm in front of a classroom of my Princeton uh, undergraduates in constitutional interpretation or my course on civil liberties, and I'm trying to, to show them just how important constitutional structural constraints on power are. I'm going to take it for granted that you think that, <laughs> pretty much. 
Uh, and I'm going to talk about some other things that are necessary if those constitutional structural constraints are going to be worth the paper they're printed on. Now, the Constitution of the United States, in its uh, uh, famous Madisonian system, establishes a set of structural constraints on the power of the central government, the national government, what we call the federal government. More than 200 years of experience with the system gives us a pretty good perspective on both its strengths and its limitations. The major, construct, uh, the major structural constraints are these. One, the doctrine of the general government is a government of delegated and enumerated and therefore limited powers. That comes as a surprise to most of my students, but that's the theory of the Constitution. Two, the dual sovereignty of the general government and the states, with the states functioning as governments of general jurisdiction, exercising generalized police powers, a kind of plenary authority, limited under the national constitution only by specific prohibitions or grants of power to the general government in a federal union. Three, the separation of legislative, executive, and judicial powers within the national government, creating a so-called system of checks and balances that limits the power of any one branch and, at least it's hoped, uh, improves the quality of government by making the legislative and policy-making processes more challenging, slower, and more deliberative. And then four, the practice nowhere expressly authorized in the text of the Constitution, but lay that aside for now, the practice of constitutional judicial review by the federal courts. Now, I often ask my students at the beginning of my undergraduate course on civil liberties, how did the framers of our Constitution, the founders of the American Republic, seek to preserve liberty and prevent tyranny by this Constitution. Now, it's a testament, alas, to the poor quality of much of our civic education that almost none of my students at the beginning can answer this question correctly. Nor, I suspect, could the editors of any of our major newspapers or other opinion-shaping elites. The typical answer, whether in a classroom or in a newspaper editorial, goes something like this. Well, I can tell you how the framers of the Constitution sought to protect liberty and prevent tyranny. They attached to the Constitution a Bill of Rights to protect the individual and minorities against the tyranny of the majority. And they vested the power to enforce those rights in the hands of judges who serve for life and are, sub are not subject to election or recall. They cannot be removed from office except on impeachment for serious misconduct and are therefore able to protect people's fundamental rights without fear of political retaliation. That's the standard answer. That's how the Constitution was designed to protect liberty and prevent tyranny. Now, this is about as wrong as you can get. But it's widely believed, and as I say, not just by freshman university students. None of the American founders, even among those who favored judicial review and regarded it as implicit in the Constitution, which not all did, Hamilton did, but not all did, believed that it was the central or even a significant constraint upon the power of the national government. Nor did they believe that the enforcement of the Bill of Rights guarantees by courts could be an important way of protecting liberty. The Federalists, in the original sense of those who supported the proposed Constitution, generally actually opposed a Bill of Rights, this includes Hamilton, by the way, and originally Madison, because they feared it would actually undermine what they regarded as the main structural constraints protecting freedom and protecting 
uh, preventing tyranny, namely, one, the conception and public understanding of the general government not as a government of general jurisdiction, but as a government of delegated and enumerated and therefore limited powers, and two, the division of powers between the national government and the states in a system of dual sovereignty. When political necessity forced the Federalists to yield to demands for a Bill of Rights in the form of the first eight amendments to the Constitution, they took care to add two more amendments, the Ninth and the Tenth, designed to reinforce the delegated powers doctrine and the federalism principles that they feared would be obscured or weakened by the inclusion of a Bill of Rights. Now, as for the way judicial review has functioned as a structural constraint in American history, suffice it to say that the practice has given legal and political philosopher Jeremy Waldron, a fierce critic of judicial review, plenty of ammunition in making his case around the world against permitting judges to invalidate legislation on constitutional grounds. The federal courts and the Supreme Court in particular have had their glory moments to be sure, such as in the racial desegregation case of Brown against the Board of Education. But they've also handed down decision after decision from Dred Scott against Sanford in the 1850s, which facilitated the expansion of slavery, to Lochner against New York in the early part of the 20th century, which struck down state worker protection laws, limiting working hours in industrial bakeries to 60 hours per week, to Roe versus Wade in the 1970s, which legalized abortion throughout the United States, decisions in which the justices have drawn severe criticism, justly in my opinion, for overstepping the bounds of their own authority and unconstitutionally imposing their personal, moral, and political opinions on the entire nation. Quite apart from whatever one's views happen to be on any of the underlying substantive issues, these decisions are widely and I think rightly regarded as usurpations of the authority of the democratically constituted people to govern themselves. Moreover, since the 1930s, the courts have done very little indeed by way of exercising the power of judicial review to support the other constitutional structural constraints on the exercise of central governmental power. A very small number of isolated decisions have struck down this or that specific piece of federal legislation as exceeding the delegated powers of the national government or trenching upon the reserved powers of the states, but that is about it. A few relatively minor isolated decisions. Most recently and spectacularly, the Supreme Court found a way by a bare majority to uphold what seemed to many to be a rather obvious case of constitutional overreaching by the national government, the imposition of an individual mandate requiring citizens to purchase health insurance coverage as part of President Obama's signature Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. The government defended the mandate as a legitimate exercise of the expressly delegated power of the national government to regulate commerce among the states. The trouble, of course, is that on its face, the mandate does not regulate commerce at all. It seems, at least, to force people into commerce, a particular kind of commerce, on pain of a financial penalty. Now, the court's four liberal justices at the time were willing to stick to what has become longstanding tradition for those on their side of the divide, namely, counting virtually anything the national government proposes to do as a legitimate exercise of the power to regulate interstate commerce, if that's what the government says it is. The five, at the time, more conservative justices were willing to say that whatever is going on with the imposition of a mandate to purchase health insurance, it is not regulating interstate commerce. 
One of the five, however, Chief Justice Roberts, decided to reinterpret the penalty as a tax. He then joined the four liberal justices to uphold the mandate and the legislation as a whole as constitutionally permissible. Now that's odd to say the least in view of the fact that the Obama administration and its supporters in Congress had repeatedly and vociferously denied that the penalty was a tax. That was during the debate leading up to the passage of the act. And there are other constitutional questions that arise and that are not addressed by Chief Justice Roberts if one regards the penalty as a tax. Now many critics of the decision say that the matter should not have ended up in the courts at all. Congress itself and the President, they say, should have recognized and honored the fact that the Constitution does not empower the national government to impose a mandate on the people to purchase products including health care coverage. Of course, the Constitution could be amended to create a new delegated power, as has happened in the past, but of course it was not what was done here. Now whether one agrees with that position or not, it should remind us that one of the problems with judicial review in general and with its, in general, is that its practice tends to encourage belief among legislators, and worse still, among citizens, among us, that the constitutionality of proposed legislation is not the concern of the people's elected representatives. If a proposed piece of legislation is unconstitutional, they say, then it's up to the courts to strike it down. But this is a travesty. Now, I don't know if any of the rest of you do the crazy thing I do. Sometimes when I'm up late at night, for whatever reason I can't sleep, I turn on C-SPAN. Do any of you do that? Yeah. And, and there they will be uh, devoutly uh, rerunning uh, a tape of, uh, of uh, perhaps earlier in the day, sometime in the afternoon, or perhaps even before that, a debate on the floor of the Senate or of the House of Representatives on some bill. And, you know, there, there are two people in the chamber, one Democrat and one Republican. The place is otherwise empty. Uh, so it's, it's, the, it's the two of them and me is the only guy who's up late at night watching C-SPAN. Uh, and uh, one guy uh, who's proposing uh, the legislation will say, you know, that here's there's this great legislation that my party has introduced and we need to enact it because it's for the good of the people and the American people need this and the American people want this and so forth and so on. And the opposing party guy then will say, well, you know, it's a bad bill, and not only is it a bad bill, it's an unconstitutional bill. And the first guy will say, well, I insist that it is a good bill, and as for, my honorable, as for the honorable gentleman's claim that it's unconstitutional, well, that'll be up to the courts to decide. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. The constitutionality of legislation, whether it's within the authority of Congress to enact a piece of legislation, is first a concern for the Congress and the president whose signature is required for the bill to become law. The debate over constitutionality should take place there. It shouldn't be just shifted off to the courts. For structural constraints to accomplish what they're meant to accomplish, for them to constrain the power of government as they're meant to do, the question of the constitutionality of legislation in light of those constraints is everybody's business, not just the court's business. Judges exercising judicial review, yes, but also legislators, executives, and the people themselves. Whatever side you were on on the debate over the Affordable Care Act, at least one pretty good thing that came out of that debate was that we did in our public media finally actually have a debate about the commerce power. It wasn't the greatest debate in the world. Yeah, there were lots of ways it could be improved, 
But for a people that were unaccustomed to having those debates for many decades, it was a kind of promising sign. And I would certainly like to see more than that, more of that. And that brings me to the critical, yet oddly neglected, subject of political culture. Now, I mentioned my uh, dear friend, Professor Jeremy Waldron, a few minutes ago. A few years ago, Professor Waldron visited his native New Zealand to read his countrymen the Riot Act about what he condemned as the abysmal quality of that nation's parliamentary debate. The bulk of his lecture was devoted to an analysis and critique of the range of factors leading to the impoverishment of legislative deliberation, warranting the stinging title he assigned to his lecture, which was Parliamentary Recklessness. Its penultimate section, entitled Parliamentary Debate, offered a thoroughly gloomy appraisal of the situation in the New Zealand National Legislature. But instead of ending there, offering no grounds for hope, Professor Waldron concluded with a section entitled The Quality of Public Debate in which he pointed to the possibility that the deficiencies of parliamentary debate may, at least partially, be compensated for by a higher quality of public debate. He even hinted that a higher quality of public debate could prompt the reforms necessary to at least begin restoring the integrity of parliamentary debate. But he also warned that things could go the other way. The corruption of parliamentary debate could, and I quote him, infect the political culture at large, driving public debate down to the condition of parliamentary debate, a condition he chillingly described in the following terms. And I ask you to consider whether this sounds familiar. I quote, Parliament, becomes, Parliament has become a place where the governing party thinks it has won a great victory when debate is closed down and measures are pushed through under urgency, and the social and political forum generally becomes a place where the greatest victory is drowning out your opponent with the noise you can bring to bear, and then the premium is on name-calling, on who can bawl the loudest, who can most readily trivialize an opponent's position, who can succeed in embarrassing or shaming or, if need be, blackmailing him into silence if he holds a different view. So in a sense, and that's the end of the quotation, I'm back to my own voice, in a sense, it's up to the people themselves, ourselves, to decide whether to rise above the corruption that is demeaned legislative politics, or are we going to let it infect the culture at large, as Professor Waldron warned. And remember, the people in whose hands that decision ultimately rests are not some undifferentiated mass. The people are people, you and me, individuals. Now, of course, considered as isolated actors, there's not a lot that individuals can do to affect the political culture. But individuals can cooperate for greater effectiveness in prosecuting an agenda, whether it's an agenda of conservation or reform. And they can create associations and institutions that are capable of making a difference. Pressure groups, think tanks, all the way to tea parties and Occupy movements. A critical element of any discussion of the quality of democratic deliberation and decision making that amounts to anything more than hot air will be the indispensable role of non-governmental institutions of civil society, those little platoons yet again, in sustaining a culture 
in which political institutions do what they are established to do, do it reasonably well, and don't do what they are not authorized under the Constitution to do. And so we must be mindful that bad behavior on the part of political institutions, which means bad behavior on the part of people who exercise power as holders of public office, can weaken, enervate, and even corrupt these institutions of civil society, rendering them for all intents and purposes impotent to resist the bad behavior uh, and useless to the cause of political reform. My point, and this is why I promised to return to it here at the end, is that this is true generally, and it is certainly true with respect to the bad behavior of public officials who betray their obligations to serve by transgressing the bounds of their constitutional authority and the limits embodied in the doctrine of subsidiarity. And that applies to every branch of government, to a president, to legislators, to judges. All of them can, all of them have, transgressed the bounds of their authority. In some cases, especially in the legislative domain, sometimes institutions have ceded authority to the usurpations of other branches of government. And this is a form, either way, is a form of constitutional infidelity. Constitutional structural constraints are important but they will be effective only where they are effectually supported by the people, that is, by the political culture. The people need to understand them and value them, value them enough to resist usurpations by their rulers, even when unconstitutional programs offer immediate gratifications or the relief of urgent problems. This, in turn, requires certain virtues strengths of character, traits of character among the people. But these virtues don't just fall down from the heavens. They have to be transmitted through the generations and nurtured by each generation. Professor Munoz can probably remind me which of the Founding Fathers stated the following truth, that we are always only one generation away from losing our liberty. Each generation has to understand the principles of civic liberty, the principles of republican government, the principles of the Constitution, and protect and defend them, demand that they be honored by those who are supposed to be serving us by ruling us. Uh, Madison said that only a well-educated people can be permanently a free people, and that is also true. If you don't understand the way the constitutional system works, you're going to be in no position to defend it. And in every generation, the defense of the constitutional system is required. It is not optional. Because in every generation, human nature being what it is, if you want to know what it is, look at Federalist Number 10. Madison tells you how bad we are. He's a good Presbyterian, educated at Princeton, under John Witherspoon. Given the nature of human beings, if we do not understand, if the generation coming up behind us and behind them doesn't understand how the constitutional system works to prevent, liberty, uh, prevent tyranny and protect liberty, they're not going to be able to defend it 
and there will be rulers who will transgress constitutional norms right and left to advance their own agendas, to feather their own nests, to get ahead politically, you name it. And this points to the fact that even the best constitutional structures, and, and ours are very good. I mean, I'm willing to go to the mat to defend our Constitution. A lot of people think our Constitution is, a, is, a, is an out-of-date 18th century relic of no real relevance to us today. I think that's completely wrong, and I don't have, I've, I've held you too long already, so I won't go into that. But, I mean, I'm prepared to defend it, but even as a defender of it, I have to say, even the best constitution, even the best structural constraints on governmental power really aren't worth the paper they're printed on if the people do not understand them, value them, and have the will to resist the blandishments of those offering something tempting in return for giving them up or letting violations of them occur without swift and certain political retaliation. And that's going to be needed whether a president is a Democrat or a Republican, whether a judge was appointed by a Democrat or by a Republican. This is not a problem of party. This is a problem of human nature. And it can only be dealt with by education, commitment, virtue. And it is true that virtue is needed. And that's not merely a matter of improving civics teaching in homes and in schools. The Constitution of the United States, famously as defended by Madison in Federalist Paper of 51, was said to supply by opposite and rival interests the defect of better motives. Now, he made this point immediately after observing that the first task of government is to control the governed, and the second is to control itself. Madison allowed that, and I quote, a dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on the government, but experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. Those auxiliary precautions just are the constitutional structural constraints. But notice that in this, even in this formulation, those constraints do not stand alone. Indeed, they are presented as secondary. The primary protection for liberty is a healthy and vibrant political culture, a dependence on the people, as Madison said, to keep their rulers in line. So if you don't take my word for it, take the word of the very architect of the Constitution, James Madison. He knew that his Constitution would not go of itself, that it could not survive and accomplish its mission absent virtue in the people. And that brings us back to the question of virtue. John Adams understood as well as anyone the general theory of the Constitution. He was the ablest scholar and political theorist of the founding generation. A lot of people believe that was Jefferson. It was not. It was Adams. And he certainly got the point about supplying the defect of better motives by constitutional structural constraints. Yet he also understood, probably better than anyone, that the health of political culture was an indispensable element of the success of the constitutional enterprise, an enterprise of ensuring that the rulers stay within bounds, the bounds of their legitimate authority, and indeed be servants of the common good, servants of the people they rule. Adams remarked that our constitution is made for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate to the government of any other.
and he meant it. That wasn't just political boilerplate. That wasn't just high-sounding fancy rhetoric. Adams, believe me, was not good at high-sounding fancy rhetoric. He wasn't interested in it. Uh, left that to Jefferson, too. Uh, he, you, you, may, you may know the story of why he handed off the job that was originally uh, supposed to go to him of writing the Declaration of Independence. He hands it off to uh, Jefferson, who would later become his enemy and then become a friend again. But he hands it off to Jefferson on the ground that, uh, that uh, Mr. Jefferson uh, is uh, tall uh, and uh, well-liked uh, and writes extremely well, whereas I am short uh, and obnoxious. And Jefferson can write 10 times better than I. But Adams was a real thinker, and he got to the nerve of the thing. Absent virtue in the people, the Constitution is just words on a page. And that's because people lacking in virtue can be counted on. I don't care what their nationality, race, background, any human beings lacking in virtue can be counted on eventually under pressure when times get hard, to trade their liberty for protection, for financial or personal security, for comfort, for being looked after, for being taken care of, for having their problems solved quickly. And there will always be people occupying or standing for public office who will be very happy to offer them the deal, an expansion of their power in return for what they can offer by virtue of that expansion prosperity, order, you name it, ease. So the question then is how to form people who are fitted out with the virtues, making them capable, worthy of freedom, and capable of preserving constitutionally limited government, even in the face of strong temptations which inevitably come to compromise it away. And here we see the central political role and significance of those most basic institutions of civil society. The family, the religious community, private associations, again, Little League, 4-H, Trail Life, Frontier Girls, all that, that are devoted to the inculcation of life skills, knowledge, and virtue. Private, often religiously-based educational institutions from you know, classical Christian schools and parochial schools and Trinity School to Notre Dame University, often religious, often private, these and the like are absolutely essential to the general cultural requirement, the general uh, cultural cause of transmitting the virtues that enable people to be good constitutional citizens. These institutions are indeed, as is often said, mediating institutions. They provide a buffer between the individual and the power of the central state. And it's ultimately the autonomy, integrity, and general flourishing of these institutions that will determine the fate of limited constitutional government. And this is not only because they're primary, of their primary and indispensable role in transmitting virtues. It's also because their performance of health, education, and welfare functions is the only real alternative to the wholesale removal of these functions to what Pius XI called larger and higher associations, in other words, to government. When government expands to play the primary role in performing these functions, the ideal of limited government is soon lost, no matter 
the formal constitutional structural constraints. They'll just be blown through. And the corresponding weakening of the status and authority of the family, the church, the civic association, damages the ability of these institutions to perform all of their functions, including their moral pedagogical ones, transmitting the virtues. With that, they surely lose their capacity to influence for the good the political culture which in the end, at the end of the day, is the whole shooting match when it comes to whether rulers can truly be and will truly be our servants. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Sure, I'll help you do it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, I appreciate that very much. Thank you, and thank you for your exemplary patience. I realize that was a very long lecture. We have time for just a, a few questions. Uh, we have a tradition here at the program, which is we always ask our undergraduate students to ask one of our first questions. And I know we have a couple classes here, Professor Abby, Professor Whiteley's class, my other class. So we have the students in front of those classes or we got a student here. Oh, thank you. Um, my question is this. When you talk about subsidiarity, you tie it very closely to the idea of the state as an instrumental rather than an essentially natural good. Um, I guess my question's in two parts. One, do you think subsidiarity is only a good insofar as the state is an instrumental good? And second, if not, is there a notion of subsidiarity within the state as a natural good? Uh, okay, let me repeat the question for the, for the video. Uh, Correct me if I get it wrong. Uh, so I've, I've linked the idea of subsidiarity uh, and limited government to the, to the principle or the, my claim, echoing Professor Finnis, that the common good of the political community is fundamentally an instrumental good and not an intrinsic good, distinguishing it from the common good of institutions like the family and uh, uh, the church. Uh, I, I think in the question you you characterized my view on that matter of, um, of, the, of the political community as denying that it's a natural good, contrasting natural and uh, intrinsic goods. Mm -hmm. But that's actually not my, not my view. I'm not, I have no stake in any claim that the state is an unnatural institution or anything like that. And I'm, I'm interested in the state only as the governing apparatus of the political community. But the real question here is the nature, the character of the good, fundamentally, the character of the good of this or that type of community, of the common good of this or that type of community. Um, so then the question is, would subsidiarity remain a principle in good standing, even if it turns out I'm wrong, and the widely held view that the political community, uh, the, the good of the political, the common good of the political community is fundamentally an intrinsic good is correct. And it's a really great, question. I don't think you'd entirely have to throw subsidiarity out the window, and obviously lots of people who believe in subsidiarity also believe that the common good of the political community is fundamentally an intrinsic good. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to claim that, well, you're, there's some logical issue 
or some other intellectual problem with believing on the one hand that the uh, common good of uh, political society is fundamentally intrinsic and believing that the principle of subsidiarity applies and is, and is stringent. On the other hand, I think if we understand, I would think what I say uh, is the correct view, that the common good of the political community is fundamentally an instrumental good, it helps to make greater sense of and enables us to feel more fully the force of the principle of subsidiarity. It's a lot harder to dismiss it or ignore it or just pay lip service to it when you understand the common good of the political community is fundamentally an instrumental good. I think there's a, there's a more perfect harmony between the two concepts, that is the concept of subsidiarity and the concept of the political good of the common, uh, the common good of the political community being uh, an instrumental good, than there is between the concept of subsidiarity and the concept of the common good of the political community being fundamentally an intrinsic good. Another, another question from an undergraduate? Okay, Nick. As the, as the microphone's brought over to Nick, I think I need to make a correction of something, Professor George. You, you had a misunderstanding. Uh, Princeton was Nick's safety school. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Professor, for the, for the talk. Uh, I'm Nick. I'm a sophomore in PLS and philosophy. And I had a question similar to Jarek's, uh, having to do with the intrinsic value of institutions or instrumental value. But I was wondering if you could apply that analysis to universities and whether they form an intrinsic value or more instrumental, especially given the fact that we're pushed more and more now to see our education as an as a instrumental um, good, um, whereas it seems like it's also a valuable thing just for the, the notion of a virtuous society that you talked about in the end uh, for it to be an intrinsic good. Yeah, that's a really difficult and interesting uh, question. Of course, everything in me, uh, given my own vocation, uh, and given the natural temptation, which I've urged you to avoid and need to avoid myself, of supposing that if the common good of a particular uh, association is an intrinsic good, that makes it more important. So everything in me is pushing to say, no, universities are, uh, the common good of universities is an intrinsic good. But I suspect more fundamentally, at the end of the day, fundamentally the common good of universities is, in fact, uh, an, an instrumental good. Now, it's, it's instrumental to the achievement of some very powerful and important intrinsic goods, above all the good of, the good of, uh, of, of knowledge. Uh, but you're not apostatizing if you uh, move from Notre Dame to, I don't know, let's say Princeton, uh, the way you would be giving something intrinsically good up uh, uh, when you leave your family and just abandon, I don't mean just go off to be an adult, I mean when you repudiate your relationship with your family or you apostatize from, from, from the church or if you're Jewish from, you know, dis, 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 uh, uh, dissociate yourself from the Jewish people. So I think it's, it's different in that way. Now, take, things take, take on a, a, a special character and create a new wrinkle when your university is integrated with your faith, which I think still happens at Notre Dame. You know, some Catholic colleges and other uh, religiously affiliated universities like Princeton, Princeton began as a Presbyterian university, have thrown that off. But at a place like this one where Catholic faith is really integrated into intellectual life, it's, it adds a wrinkle. You saved yourself. Ha, ha, ha.
Maybe I'll take this opportunity just to, to, to say how easily lost that integration of faith and, and the pursuit of knowledge is. So cling to it, hang on to it. Don't, don't let your institution go down the road that so many have gone down, including mine. Yeah. Uh, first, thank you for your talk, Professor George. Uh, my question is, you mentioned um, Jeremy Waldron's point about how uh, the toxicity of legislatures can infect public debate. Um, and how in turn that uh, the public must rise above the toxicity of the legislature. Of course, that's a lot easier said than done. Um, so what are some guiding principles that you uh, think of to uh, elevate public debate uh, in the public square, you know, from uh, all sectors of society? I'll tell you one thing that, that we can all do. Call out your own partisan team when the people who are exercising power uh, representing your party do the wrong thing. You know, just d d don't, don't fall into the trap of being always a team player. Now, there's a place for being a team player, where sometimes you go along with the team because this is the decision that the team made, so you're gonna back it, you would have preferred something different, at least a little different, but this is what the decision was by the team, and so I'm on the team, so I play for the team. There's a place for that in politics. You know, I don't, I don't I'm not, I'm not proposing some crazy idealist uh, notion where no one ever plays for, the, plays for the team. But sometimes the team does things that are wrong or that you in good conscience cannot go along with. At least as far as you're concerned, it's wrong. Don't be quiet. Certainly don't play along. And don't even be quiet about it. If your team's doing something wrong, say, look, we're on the wrong side of this. We've got to get on the right side of this. This is a mistake. I think that's something that the, it's a lot harder for members of, of Congress to do that. They get punished by the leadership or by the voters, especially in conditions in which base, the base is what's actually determining election outcomes. But, but the rest of us, the people, you know, we don't, we're not under those constraints. It's easier for us. Now, we should do it even when it's hard. And I, and I, and I commend those like Senator Ben Sass, for example, who's a good example of that, who does it when it's hard. But even though we should do it when it's hard, Gosh, when it's easy, there's no excuse for not doing this. And it's easy for us ordinary citizens. Just a couple more. Yeah. Hi, Professor. Uh, just want to say thanks again for coming and speaking with us. Um, my question is, much of what you talked about rung to me as this idea of the tyranny of the majority. Um, the kind of theory that Tocqueville and even James Madison and much of the founders had kind of had in the back of their mind, I think, when they were building this constitution. Um, so my question is, because the founders had a sense of this uh, tyranny of the majority, and because we could say that as a result of Obama and Trump's presidencies, tribalism is kind of an ideal that has become very apparent in our politics, uh, do you think the constitution that the founders built itself can still remedy and combat these issues, or is, has democracy and the constitution itself been chipped away so much that it will now be interpreted in a way that it's based less on a fair process, but more on uh, a process that builds for necessity. As my mother or my wife would attest, I'm incredibly stubborn. So I refuse to give up on this constitution. I just refuse. Now I realize that we have never been faithful to it. Never perfectly, not even close to perfectly faithful to it. From the very earliest time of our republic, there's the sin of slavery. 
uh, constitutional infidelity when it came to racial injustice. We, we've had a lot of constitutional infidelity. Um, it, starting really in the late 19th uh, century, and certainly um, with Will, you know, in full, full force with Wilson's presidency, you do get a kind of turning against the Constitution, a coming to believe uh, by powerful people, by elites, not just in politics, but just in education and culture, that the Constitution is just out of date. It doesn't work. Uh, it, it, when he was actually holding my chair, when, 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 or I guess I'm in his chair, but when Wilson was McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton and a noted political scientist, he dismissed the American Constitution as a Newtonian document that's not fit for a Darwinian age. He wanted a new constitution, one that would get rid of some of these structural constraints that would enable government to be swifter, more efficient, move more quickly, deal with modern problems in a way that uh, it couldn't, he believed, with the 18th century strictures, or the strictures of the 18th century constitution. I think there is eternal wisdom in, um, in the Madisonian uh, system. The, the, our founders feared mass democracy. They, they didn't even, they, I mean, they disfavored, not only did they not favor, they disfavored the term democracy. They wanted strong democratic elements in the Republican system, but they favored the term Republican over democracy because they were worried about that tyranny, that democratic tyranny, and they were worried about demagoguery. And remember, dem demagoguery comes in different forms. It comes in a rough course form, and it also comes in a very smooth form. But when you eliminate structural constraints and there's too much power concentrated in the hands of too few people, you're going to get demagoguery and you're going to get tyranny and you're going to get tribalism. If you look at Federalist Number 10, you see Madison worried about faction. What destroys republics? What do we have to avoid if this republic, unlike all the republics of the past, will actually succeed? We're going to have to avoid faction. In other words, tribalism. And here's how we do it with these kinds of structural constraints. And we do it by ensuring that there is a kind of pluralism that will create overlapping and shifting interest groups so that we don't get the kind of tribalism that will ultimately bring down a republic and bring about a strongman, a, tyrant, a, 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 a tyrant. So you're right, our problem today is tribalism. Amy Chua of Yale Law School has written a wonderful book called Tribalism, which I recommend to all of you. Uh, we know what the problem is. Uh, we can see it. Now we're going to have to figure out what we do about it. And my suggestion, being a very stubborn guy, my suggestion is let's go back. I've got an idea. Let's go back to the Constitution. I think the answer to tribalism is constitutional fidelity. That means presidents stay within their lines. And Congresses and courts insist that presidents stay within their lines, whether it's a president you like or whether it's a president you don't like, whether it's a president of your party or whether it's a president of the other party. Same with courts. They do judging, not lawmaking. They stay within their lines. And it's up to Congress and the president, as President Lincoln himself said and did, it's up to Congress and presidents to keep the courts in line. And Congress has got to do its job. We do need to elevate the quality of legislative deliberation, the legislative debate, and we need to, need to demand that our legislator, that our national legislator, legislature, that our, our Congress actually legislate. A lot of our problems today is, of course, that the laws under which we actually live and function are not made by the Congress. 
And it's not just that there are executive orders and judicial dictates. It's that a great deal of what we live under are rules made by bureaucrats whom we couldn't name and we never voted for in federal agencies. Now, I'm not proposing to, what Steve Bannon say, deconstruct the administrative state. But it does mean that while there's a place for rulemaking in the agencies, it's not acceptable for Congress to abrogate or to uh, uh, yield over its legislative responsibility to the executive branch in the uh, agencies. So I think the overall quality of our politics, including the problem of tribalism, can be addressed substantially, not completely, but substantially, by actually getting back to constitutional fidelity. The themes of today's lecture, uh, the common good, subsidiarity, enumerated rights, um, that's what we do in the Constitutional Studies program. We've created a program where we try to educate about the Constitution because we educate for liberty. And I cannot think of a better lecture to explain what we're all about than Dr. George's. Please join me in thanking Dr. Robbie George.